This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. This week I'm ecstatic to welcome back Jeff Goins to the show for the fourth time. Jeff and I have an ongoing conversation that links all of his previous books together. And in this episode, we pick that conversation back up with his latest book, Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in the New Creative Age. Jeff has been all over a bunch of different podcasts, so you may have already heard an interview with Jeff on this book, but I always strive to have different and or better questions than other podcasts. So I highly encourage you to listen in on this conversation with Jeff as we tackle some of the myths that are out there in terms of being an artist. First and foremost, we cover what the heck is an artist? What is the definition of an artist? And we tackle the myth that you can't become one or that if you do become one, you can't make money at it, that you can't be successful, that you can't thrive in many different ways. And so hence the title of the book, which is a spin on the old starving artist phrase. We also touch on the fact that many artists believe that they have to create in isolation or on their own, solo, when in fact, you can create with others, especially with the internet and local communities. And yet another myth that you have to do something truly original instead of innovating and adding your own voice to an existing artistic conversation that has been going on for years. On the back of Jeff's book, Seth Godin says this, Jeff Goins is back with his most powerful book yet. Every page offers insight, hope, and practical advice for anyone who wants to make their dent in the universe. And I love this quote because right now, Seth Godin's Alt-MBA workshop is one of the options that exists out there for you to bust that myth that you have to create solo. Seth's Alt-MBA workshop is enrolling now for summer and fall sessions, and it brings you together with groups of other high-caliber people who are wanting to get their hands dirty and learn to ship by working on 13 projects over the month collaboratively. If anything's going to break you from the thought that you have to do the artist's life all on your own, this is it. The curriculum is entirely hands-on, and the workshop splits you up into these groups every week, so you're not just going to meet some new people. You're going to meet a lot of new people, and you're going to work with them to get and give feedback and learn to create and collaborate in a whole new way that it's going to take your work and your art to a whole new level that wasn't possible before. To find out more, visit altmba.com slash to-do. For special consideration, mention this podcast in your application to let them know I sent you. 
Again, that's altmba.com slash T-O-D-O. And now enjoy this conversation with Jeff Goins. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome back to the show for the fourth time. And you're tying the record holder of uh, Michael Hyatt now, Jeff, and and Claire Diaz-Ortiz. But anyway, mm. uh, Jeff Goins, you are back. Welcome back. Thanks, Eric. Good to be here. Love love your show. Love having conversations with you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. You were you were on episode six way back in the day. Whoa. Yeah. And That's then cool. uh, a couple other times. We we've got this ongoing conversation that basically we're gonna pick back up on here, which follows the thread of your books. So I wasn't surprised when I saw the new book title because it's just the continuing conversation slash uh, you know, what you're wrestling with and dealing with in terms of your own artistry. So, you know, you you came out with you're a writer, so start acting like one because Mm -hmm. you knew you were, but you wanted to tell other people, like, look, you got to claim it or you won't be it. And then you moved on and started talking about Wrecked, why the world needs what you have to offer, and the in-between about embracing the tension between now and the next big thing. And then the art of work, discovering what you're meant to do, and all of those, you can kind of trace a through line through. And I think, honestly, everybody should go back and listen to those episodes. But now you've come out with Real Artists Don't Starve, Timeless Strategies for Thriving in a New Creative Age. How do you see this book connecting to that past thread? Well, I think when I started, when we started doing these interviews, Eric, years ago, I mean, this is what, five, six years in the making now. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like, you can see the the, the themes and the thread, <laughs> and I was very confident of that. And 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 these days, I'm less confident of that, and just going, you know, I'm just kind of sharing what's on my mind. I write books about things, not that I'm sure of, but that I'm curious about. And I also write books uh, about ideas and themes that I have had personal experience with, but that it, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an expert at. I'm more like trying to dig into this thing and find out if this idea is true. So typically I write a book because I had an experience with something and then I do a bunch of research and this process has become a little bit more involved as I've matured as a writer. Uh, And then I go, okay, like what's going on here? And in the case of Real Artists Don't Starve, for the past five years, I've made a living as a full-time writer, which um, started out as a really big surprise and uh, then became something that I wondered, was I just lucky, you know, um, and, and I was, you know, really grateful for the opportunity, but I wondered, can other people do this? And uh, over the years, I've bumped into two groups of people whom I call starving artists and thriving artists. And I kept running into people who were creatives. They were working in uh, various fields, uh, you know, graphic designers, painters, musicians, uh, certainly lots of writers, uh, and even creative entrepreneurs. And I began to notice a number of themes, commonalities that they all had where, um, you know, they were doing a lot of the same things. And yet I kept running into people who were starving artists, basically saying, Oh, I could never do that for a living, or you can't make any money off of music or writing or whatever. It's just it's just my side gig. And it turns out a lot of the things that the thriving artists were doing were exactly the things that the starving artists weren't doing. And so I just started to, to notice a correlation, and this resonated with my own experience. And so I began this book with the question, do you really have to starve for your art today? 
we understand, I think, that more and more people want to be creative and we understand the opportunities that exist with the internet and and just technology. Like if you have a message, I mean, we're, we're using a technology right now that 10, 20, well, 25 years ago, um, we, we pretty much could not conceive of that. We get to broadcast, uh, you know, radio on the internet w- without having, you know, what, a $100,000 studio to do it. Uh, it's incredible, the opportunities that exist today. And yet I still meet so many people talking as if it's 25, 50, or 100 years ago. And so the question was, do you really have to starve to be an artist, whatever that term means to you? And yeah, I think the the thread here is going from this idea of belief, hey, you are a writer, you are this thing, so you can start acting like it, to what does it take to actually thrive in your creative career? So my last book, The Art of Work, was really about finding that thing that makes you come alive, your calling. This is about how to make a living off of it and whether or not that's even possible. Well, and quick aside here, like The Art of Work points back to the fact that it's not that you are born an artist, it's that you become one you you become one yes you become one you continually become one even when you actually have artistic output you are continually becoming that thing that you are meant to do right yeah it's this uh, what i call is the rule of recreation And, and basically the idea here eric is that most of the creatives i talked to i surveyed hundreds of working creatives to write this book and also read a couple hundred biographies of famous uh, artists, musicians, writers, entrepreneurs for the past 500 years and, and basically ask the question, what does it take to succeed as a creative professional today? And what are the things that have always worked and, and what are the things that are working today? So I didn't want a book of a bunch of things that work right now but in five years probably wouldn't work. And I also didn't want a bunch of things that worked 50 years ago but have no bearing on uh, today's world. And so in the book, there are these 12 timeless strategies for thriving in what I call the new creative age, in this new era that we live in where opportunities to share your creative work are unprecedented. I mean, it's just, it is available to practically anyone and certainly everybody who's listening uh, to this. And the first rule is it's never too late to recreate yourself. You know, so if you are, oh, I don't know, work, working at a college and real, and you really like social media and, you know, you decide, well, what I really want to do is get into uh, podcasting and, and, and help. The story sounds familiar <laughs> here. <laughs> Great job, You know what man. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Like the that was the common thing. The people who said, oh, I've, I've been painting ever since I was three years old and I and this is what I was born to do. That was the exception. Certainly there are people like that. But becoming an artist for every person I talked to, almost every successful artist in history, it was a choice. There was a moment at which their life was headed in one direction, and they had to make a decision. And in some cases, it was just a minor pivot. In others, it was a huge, drastic change, like in the case of Adrian Cardenas, who was a full-time professional Major League Baseball player playing for the Chicago Cubs and decided after his first year in the majors – I'm going to go be a filmmaker because this is what I really want to do. And I begin the book there because I think so many of us find ourselves in a place in life, in our careers, where we feel stuck. We feel like we missed it. And uh, I wanted to start off the bat because this was my story too, you know, at 28-ish years old, not super late in life, 
but far enough along in a career that I felt like uh, I could keep going in this direction and that would be a good thing, but would it be the best thing? And so at 28, I decided, well, what I really want to be is a writer. So can I, can I do that? Do I have permission to do that or did I miss it? I know so many people feel like they've missed their opportunity to do the creative work that's inside of them and, and so they just kind of keep going along with their secure job, their safe life. And, and I began the book with, with giving the reader permission. It's never too late to change. And the idea of being an artist means that you you get to recreate yourself at any time. And as you said, Eric, you're co- we're constantly recreating ourselves. We're constantly better understanding who we really are and that if we're brave enough, actually trying to create that reality for ourselves, becoming who we are, which is this you know, constant, uh, continual process. Totally. And the question there that you're wrestling with is this idea of, am I locked into this for the duration at this point? Is it too late to change? And it's that real mental mind shift or mindset that, you know, again, uh, there you go. Mindset. We think of set as in locked in. Is it Mm, mindset? mm -hmm. Is our mindset malleable? Is it flexible? Can we perceive potentially that, that we are not stuck, that we could transition into something else. And I think here's the thing. I, I really want to ask this. This is a kind of a, a case where semantics really get us kind of tripped up. Mm-hmm. And we talk about this word artist, and we talk mm-hmm. about this word creative. And some people may feel like they are, quote, stuck where they are. And one of the things that started to change my mindset with that was a year ago, I had Rob Bell on the show. He was on talking about yeah. his book, uh, How to Be Here. And, I love that book. And that book's very crea- uh, very connected to your book, The In-Between, because it's all about being where you are and fully being there yeah. and embracing what that moment is for, knowing it's not a wasted moment. And I think people who are in positions that are not traditionally called artistic or creative miss out on the artistry in their day job. Yeah, absolutely. Art, my definition of it, is it is your creative gift that you have to share with the world. Seth Godin talks about this in The Icarus Deception, how we're all creating art as long as we're we're making stuff that is transforming other people. I believe that we all have gifts to share, but we haven't created our art yet until we share it. So that novel in your sock drawer, it's not art. The video that you're just try, you know constantly editing and trying to tweak before you upload it to YouTube, not art. The, the podcast idea in your mind or the business idea or the vision for your future that hasn't yet come to be in any sense of the word, it's not art. And so on one hand, this idea of recreation is permission that you get to change. Even if you've been told your whole life you are this thing, you are in control of, of this person that is, that is you that you're constantly creating and recreating. The challenge to that is – you can't just dream about it, right? So I know so many people who have big dreams, uh, creative ideas of things they want to make or do, and yet they're not taking any steps in that direction. What I observed when I was doing research for this book, again, interviewing hundreds of working, thriving creatives today, I found that the norm was not taking some giant leap uh, into this full-time career as an artist. The norm was a gradual progression in the direction of that dream, meaning they were taking daily steps. In the book, I tell the story about John Grisham, who thought, well, 
can I be a writer? It wasn't even like a big dream. It was just an idea that he had. By the way, when he was uh, a new dad and a brand new lawyer, like can you imagine a busier person? Yes. And and yet he decides, even with all of these constraints, that he's like he'd like to try his hand at writing. What he doesn't do is he doesn't quit his job. He doesn't risk his family's security on this uh, whim that you know he could maybe write a novel. He's not even sure. So what does he do? He tests the idea. He gets up a little bit early every day, goes in the office, and writes one page of a novel. He does this for a year. It's kind of fun. Uh, does it another year. <laughs> Finishes the novel. It's called The Time to Kill. It's his first novel. Releases it. Doesn't sell a bunch of copies. You know, he publishes it with a small publishing house. He goes, well, that was fun. I'm going to do it again. Does the same thing. Gets up, writes a page a day, finishes another book called The Firm in about a year. And then he, he's able to sell that to a publisher. The other book starts selling. And, and then The Firm goes on to be this mega bestseller. And now he has an opportunity to, quote, unquote, take the leap. And so he quits his job and becomes a full-time writer. Two novels into the process. How did he get there? Not by some giant leap, but by taking gradual baby steps. So this idea of becoming someone new, recreating yourself, it's a gradual process. And on one hand, that should give us a sense of relief, like, oh, phew, we, we don't have to make some giant transition tomorrow. On the other hand, you should feel challenged. It, there should be a little bit of pressure here because what that means is you've got to do something, some small thing today. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search, just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people or at least it used to be, join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. I really loved John Grisham's story that you shared in this because he was continually like it was what was his daily uh, you know he sat down and he daily did his writing. In other words, yeah, he he sat down and he shipped. He right. I mean he wasn't sharing it yet, but he did complete it and and practiced it and then shared it. Or at least yep. attempted to. And we all think of John Grisham as this like overnight success. Like suddenly there was like – when I first became aware of John Grisham, most like most people, it wasn't first or second novel. It was like five or six novels in. Of course. And yeah. suddenly we're like, boom, who is this guy? Whoa, I picked up one and then I read the rest. You know? Yep. And we don't realize that he had been making basically deposits of – you know, into that consistent output 
of putting something out there for a long time, especially before he then you know got his quote big break. Which right it, 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 again, there's no such thing as that overnight success. It's not that it doesn't happen; it's that it does happen, but it doesn't have to be the rule. You don't have to starve. The argument of the book is being a starving artist today is a choice, not a necessary condition of doing creative work. So if you're ch- if you're starving, I know this sounds a little bit harsh, uh, and in the book I explain why this is so. If you're starving, it's a choice because the opportunities to succeed, if you're willing to grab hold of them, if you're willing to do the work, you don't have to starve. And again, the opposite of a starving artist is not a rich artist. This is not some fantasy book about how to make millions off of your art. Certainly, there are people doing that. Uh, I don't think that's the norm, and I don't think that's what most people want or even need. But what we're all kind of wondering is this thing that I'm passionate about, this gift that I have to share, whatever it is. You just have a way of solving people's problems. Uh, you like speaking or singing or knitting. And, and you're and you're kind of toying with this idea, could this could I like do this for a living? And I'm not suggesting every hobby we do has to, you know, be monetized and turned into a vocation, but there is this thing for most people that underneath the surface of what is expected of them, the role that they're playing deep down in their soul. There is this thing, this calling that they have inside of them. I believe it. Some work to share with the world. And the question is, can I do this for real? And in the book, I argue you can. And by the way, many of history's successful artists whom we think starved, even people like Van Gogh, Michelangelo, Picasso, they did not have to starve or suffer for their work. That is a myth, and I think it is doing more harm than good to our best creative work. Definitely. And, and one of the things that I want to kind of hit on here is one of the people that lives lives down near you, in fact, we both know him, Derek Webb, like he commonly says in, in, that he does his music and he makes a living. and. Yeah. That's to me. That's thriving. To me, I think a Agreed. lot of people. I think the thing that busts through here is we feel like, oh, I must starve. Artists feel like they must starve because they either have to hit it big, or struggle and just scrape to get by. And they don't realize that there's this uh, middle ground. Is probably not the right words or terms, but there's this thriving in terms of your spirit and your your calling and your work that still gets you paid enough to make you know to pay the bills and then some and get enough tools of the trade or whatever you want to call it paint ink macbooks whatever to continue making more art that's right yeah so thriving means that you're making a living off of your art i want to be clear on that and some people are doing great they're doing six and seven figures off of their art uh but there was this study that came out uh that comes out every year and it's um it's it's from the University of Indiana, by the way, and it's called uh, the SNAP study, S-N-A-A-P, uh, which is an acronym. And I always forget what the acronym stands for, so I'm Googling it, uh, and I'm stalling while I'm Googling. Um, <laughs> it's, called the, it's called the Strategic National Arts Alumni Project, and what they do is they survey – Roughly, it depends on the year, but they survey you know, 80 to 120,000 uh, graduates of the arts programs across the U.S. and basically ask them every year, where are you at now? And the statistics, frankly, Eric, are surprising. It turns out that most uh, graduates of arts programs are not starving. They are in a job. 
Uh, this is over 70%. They are in a job where they are using their art degree. And th these are students of the arts, not the, much less people who didn't go to school to study, um, you know, painting, literature, what have you. So these are just art students who 70% of which are using their creative gifts in their career today. The vast majority of them have been self-employed uh, at some point, which is really interesting. Here's the, here's the best part about that study. Uh, over 80%, almost 90% of these graduates are really, really happy with their jobs. Now, what I think is so interesting about this is uh, there was that, that study um, several years ago released by Gallup where it said 87% of the world's workers are disengaged with their work. They're not particularly happy with their jobs. So if you are an artist, you are a creative and you're using your creative gifts in your vocation, you're the opposite of that. Like you're, 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 you're the exception to the norm where most people hate their jobs. You're really, really enjoying it. Anyway, I mean, you can, you can Google snap S N A A P and you'll find it's the first thing that pops up. Um, and, and they've been doing this study for years. And I just think that's kind of interesting because we think artists have to starve and suffer for their work. Well, these artists are making the equivalent, uh, of their peers, uh, in, in many cases, they're making, you know, on average after graduating, like forty-five to seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, and that's kind of the median income. So that's a living for many people. Yeah. Uh, and and there are many people who are succeeding beyond that. And I talk to so many writers, artists, creatives, aspiring whatevers, and you know, they're making less than a buck or even a hundred bucks a month off of their writing. And 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 if I told them, hey, you can make fifty grand a year. As a writer, as as a musician, they would go, "Wow, really? I can." So you don't have to starve. Many artists, in fact, are not starving. And this whole idea of the starving artist, again, I think, is a story that we tell ourselves. And if we tell ourselves a story long enough, Eric, we begin to believe that it's true. And this is really dangerous because if you believe something's true, you tend to act as if it's true. And guess what? It tends to become true. And so I believe. Uh, just like John Grisham did. First, you have to start with an idea, belief. He was like, can I be a writer? So it starts with belief. You have to believe it. Then the next thing you have to do is you got to act like it. You have to behave as if it's true. So you believe, then you behave, and then ultimately you become. And and John Grisham did this. Another person who did this was Michelangelo who grew up. His parents told him he was a uh, – he, he descended from uh, wealthy noblemen. Like his his last name Buonarotti, uh was a noble name. A lot of lot of common folk didn't have last names. He had a last name, so that made him special. And so he grows up his whole life thinking that he's special. And so when he decides to be an artist, which was kind of a manual labor job at the time, uh, you know, his father's kind of worried about that. And, and this whole time, his father's pressuring him, like he's got to make a living. You know, he's got to uh, provide for the family. He's the breadwinner. His older brother went off and, and was a priest. And so it's kind of, the pressure's on him to make money. So he's the whole time, though, he's thinking like an aristocrat. And, and, and he once wrote in a letter, I never kept a shop like many artists do. And, and, and that's kind of like a derogatory dig at, at his peers. What he's saying is I, I'm not like all these other guys. Like I worked for popes and princes and noblemen. Like my patrons were the wealthiest members of society. And what he's saying is I think about myself differently. And what ends up happening is Michelangelo becomes the richest artist of the Renaissance. And at the time of his death, he was worth nearly 50 million 
dollars. He was not only the richest artist of the Renaissance, but at that point, the richest artist who had ever lived. And he set a new precedent for artists and creatives who came after him. I mean, he really broke the glass ceiling. And afterwards, there were many, many wealthy artists in the Renaissance. In the book, I, I really say we we got to get back to this. I call this the new Renaissance. We got to get rid of this, the story of the starving artist, which really came about in the rom- Romantic era, era, the you know 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, it's a myth. It it is an unnecessary idea that is hurting us more than it's helping us. Uh, Michelangelo believed something, he behaved like it, and he became it. By the way, uh, turns out he wasn't descended from noble people after all. It's not true. <laughs> like historians found this out later. It wasn't true. Isn't that interesting? Like even if you believe something that's not true, if you believe it with your heart enough, it can become true. And you know, I don't want to sound too woo-woo here. I mean, I just think it's a mindset thing, right? Like if oh, yeah. you think you're if you think you're a loser and no girls ever going to go out with you, which I could <laughs> I could totally identify <laughs> with. Guess what? Like people can see that you walk around, go to parties or whatever, and you're a loser. No girl uh, wants to go out with you. But if you change your mindset, right? Even if you have to trick yourself into being a little bit more confident, it can work. And so I don't believe we fake it till we make it, but we do believe it till we become it. Yeah, and and you're, I mean, essentially with this book, you're myth busting. You're yeah, I hope so. Yeah, breaking the myth that you have to starve if you're an artist, breaking the myth that you can't be an artist. And right. one of my favorites is you're breaking the myth that people who create are these lone geniuses. This I love – I'm a huge Tolkien and C.S. Lewis fan, so the Inklings yeah. stuff just connected with me, especially because I just recently went to – and I want, I want you to tell the story about the Inklings stuff, but okay. I, it, it connects to me because I – just recently kind of met with my own inklings. I do that on a weekly basis. We, we, on Wednesday nights, we get together and we watch the West Wing at one of my friend's house and we all talk, we talk about it. And it's, it's so fun. We break ideas out and share them and move them forward. And we just did it again the other night. We went to U2 last week and Wilco yeah. the other night and awesome. we did these contrasts and comparisons between the two bands and the two experiences we had. And even I can, I'm going to bring up U2 and Wilco again, but what's the inklings? <laughs> The Inklings were a group of professors at Oxford who met for years, and there was 19 of them. They were all men. They met at uh, Oxford University in England. As you mentioned, there were a couple – there were several famous people that were part of the group, including J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And these were two guys who had literary aspirations. They were professors, uh, but they had aspirations of writing. Uh, poetry and stories and all kinds of things. But Tolkien especially was very – he was a perfectionist and he was afraid to share his work with anyone. And Lewis was the one guy that he opened up with. And it turns out they began their friendship by sharing poems that they had had written and like little stories and and myths. And, And this is how they began their friendship. And, and eventually they, they brought together a group of other friends and they started meeting every Tuesday night, drinking tea, smoking pipes. Uh, and what they would do every week is they would share their works in progress with each other. So they'd bring a piece of writing. They were all writers uh, and they would share something that they had written and then get feedback from their friends. And, and so this was this was a friendship and, and, and out of that um, came many great works. But there's a story about Tolkien and Lewis that I thought was really interesting, particularly when it comes to this idea of lone genius because 
I think even today we have this idea that geniuses do their best work in private. And certainly it's true that writing, playing music, coming up with a creative idea, there is a solitary aspect to that. I get that. I'm a writer. I spend you know a few hours a day alone writing every day. So I get that. But the best work is produced not privately but in the context of community. And as an example, uh, when Tolkien was working on his second book, so he published The Hobbit. It had done pretty well. The publisher wanted him to write another book, which he was calling The New Hobbit. But he found himself several months into the process stuck. And one day he and his friend Jack, C.S. Lewis, go out to lunch and Jack asked his friend, you know, Tolkien, uh, how's it going? How's the new book going? And Tolkien said, oh, it's going horrible. I'm bored out of my mind. I'm stuck. I can't, I can't get through this. I don't know what's wrong. Nothing's working. I, I'm going to have to quit. And uh, Lewis says he, – he you know, takes a look at it, reads it, and, and gives him some feedback and says, well, Tolkien, don't you know that hobbits are only interesting when they're placed in unhobbit-like circumstances? And this becomes a light bulb for Tolkien, right? I mean, if, if you know the Lord of the Rings, as yeah. I'm sure you do, the story doesn't really begin until uh, the hobbits leave the Shire. And, and so this unlocks something in him, and he continues to write, and he continues to bring uh, this work that will become the Lord of the Rings uh, to the this literary group called the Inklings every week. And he does this for years. It takes him years to finish these books. Uh, and every week he gets feedback. And sometimes they're even kind of annoyed by it. They're like, oh, no, not more stories of hobbits. But without this group and without this friendship, it is very likely that not only would we have never seen The Lord of the Rings, it would not look anything like the story does today. Because as as much as Tolkien was a perfectionist and scared to share his work, uh, he did do it. And he got lots of great feedback from uh, his friends, uh, in in part like on like the, the names of the hobbits. Did you know that Bilbo's original name was Bingo? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So thank God for the Inklings. And if a literary genius who goes on to write one of the best-selling novels of all time – needs the help of a community to produce his best work, how much more do we need that for ourselves? I think the other extension here is to go on to produce our best work. It's not only about creating and interacting with a creative community. It's also, I guess, in a sense, interacting with the creative community that has come before us or has already maybe achieved certain amounts of success. What I'm talking about here is the whole stealing concept here mm, mm-hmm. and so this is where it goes back to U2 and Wilco two of the band yeah. two of my favorite bands but completely unoriginal for the most part now i would right. say they've done some original stuff since they started however they drew off of all the classics in terms of like the beatles who 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 themselves drew off people before them and so on and again that whole nothing new under the sun kind of thing it's it's about having not only you yourself drawing from the past and being inspired and then putting your own experiences that resonate with the previous experiences you're reading about or learning about. Uh, and again, this is, this is where you connect because you writing this book are wrestling through the things that you were not sure of but curious of, and that's exactly what I'm getting at. 
Yeah, uh, and I, I love you brought up you too. There was a, uh, um, an interview with Bono one time where they said, hey, how did you get that original U2 sound? Like how did, how did that come about? <laughs> and he said, you know, we were just trying to copy all these other bands and we weren't good enough. And so what came out was this. If you've watched the, the documentary with The Edge, um, uh, called It Might Get Loud, have you seen oh, that? that's a great yeah with uh, yeah who, uh, Jack White and who's the other one? Um, uh, Jim, Jimmy Page. Yes, so right, it's, yes. It's three. It's kind of it's three generations of guitarists, right? Mm-hmm. So you got uh, you know Jimmy Page from the sixties and seventies. You've got Bono from the eighties and nineties and beyond, and then you've got Jack White from you know m- modern day, basically. Uh, and they're talking about their different approaches to the um, uh, to playing the electric guitar. But w- when they're interviewing the Edge, he's talking about recording Joshua Tree. And like Bono's in the background counting for everybody. He goes, man, we were we were such beginners, like we couldn't even stay on the beat. And um, this is like we were compensating. So it, it, and if you know anything about guitar or music, um, or even if you don't, like the edges guitar riffs aren't. He's not shredding, right? Like right. it's so unique. Yeah, it, it's it's a few simple notes repeated over and over and over again with a lot of effects and delays. And early on, I mean, it's become his technique, but early on he was just going, this is as good as I could play. So I had to compensate in other areas and take two or three notes and, and turn them into something. And now it's kind of become a minimalistic form of playing guitar. Uh, but I mean, you won't hear him solo very much, right? Like, cause that's not his style. So I love the idea that we're all borrowing from the greats who've come before us and, uh, you mentioned the word original. I don't believe that this is a- obtainable. And I think a lot of starving artists sit around going, how can I come up with a great idea? As if great ideas come out of nowhere. They don't. Great ideas come from other pretty good ideas that you build upon. And uh, a, a historian by the name of Will Durant once said that nothing is new except arrangement. And I like this idea a lot. So on one hand, if you know, I go to Eric Fisher's website beyond the to-do list, and you know, I l- literally copy the interviews that you're doing with people and put them on my website. I'm a thief because I've I've copied from one person. But if I go to your website and I go to Michael Hyatt's website and I go to Chris Brogan what Brogan's website and 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 I go listen to NPR and all these different. Uh, sources, and I borrow an idea from each of you and then put it together into my own podcast, what I'm doing is I am creating art. And and, and it's the same technique, right? Like I'm still copying. I'm still borrowing. And, and so it turns out the thief borrows from one person, whereas the artist borrows from many people. And history's greatest artists, creative minds, filmmakers, you name it, they were all building an idea that had come before. There, there's a story of um, about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. You may have heard this, Eric, where uh, you know Bill Gates comes out with Windows, and Steve Jobs calls him on the phone and says, "You stole from me because the Mac w- was kind of Apple was kind of the first computer company to have like a graphic user interface, right? And and they were doing a lot of innovative things with the personal computer and windows comes out and it's in many ways a copy of of how the operating system for macintosh was already working and and he calls bill gates he goes you stole from us and and gates goes look the way i see it is we were both in this neighborhood uh and we had a rich neighbor named xerox 
And when I broke in to steal his VCR, you had already stolen his TV. And what he's referring to is early on in Silicon Valley, Xerox would let anybody come in and look at what they were doing. And they basically invented the mouse. Uh, They invented all of these different things, much of which Steve Jobs basically appropriated to Apple co-opted and applied to you know some of the technology that, that Apple created. And, and, and so even a, a quote-unquote innovative company like Apple is building on what has come before. And I think the artist, if you're going to do this well, you're borrowing from multiple influences and then you're building upon it. You're adding your own interpretation of it, even if you're doing what Bono's doing just by bringing your own limitations to it and saying, well, I'm going to have to adapt this because I'm not – that good or I can't do that, so I'm going to have to do this my own way. And then ultimately, if you're really doing your job, you end up creating something so good that other people are going to start copying it and, and building upon it, and on and on it goes. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible how this process works itself out. And I think the thing then that people are thinking is, okay, well, if I break through the myth that I, one, can be an artist, two, that I don't have to starve, three, that... I don't have to do it on my own or even come up with something original, but then they move into this. But how do I actually get paid on that? And what I want to do is actually stop here because there's a wealth of this information about what to do next in all of the the resources that you and I can share from all. I mean, if there's anything that we're not hurting for right now is kind of ideas on how to (laughs) do that online business thing once you've created your art. But, I think most people forget to do the art first. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and that's why in the book I start out, you know, the first four chapters are all about your mindset and they're about how to become excellent at your craft. So you could do all these things and if you're not good, uh, they don't matter. And so skill is a prerequisite. And so I'm not somebody here saying, Oh, like you can be pretty good, like you can be okay and these things will work. No, you have to take this seriously. You have to do the best that you can do. But understand what that means is it doesn't mean being original. It doesn't mean doing it by yourself. It it doesn't mean having to be born this way. It means, as we've already talked about, making a choice, deciding to become an artist, recreating yourself, uh, finding somebody that you can learn from, apprenticing under a master, stealing the techniques of the greats who have come before you and even the great people who are your peers around you today. And then putting all that together and sharing it and saying, hey, this is this is my art. This is the thing that I've made based on what I've learned from so many other people. And if we continually doing that, as John Grisham did, continually uh, sharing our art every day, we will grow. And um, pretty soon uh, we'll wake up and go, oh, I have become this thing that just a little while ago I was struggling with believing it was even possible to be. Well said. All right, so people need to go get the book. Where can they go get the book? You can get the book wherever books are sold. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, independent bookstores, you name it. It's also on Audible, uh, iBooks, um, all those things. Um, But wherever you go, once you get the book, go to don'tstarve.com, and we have some bonuses for you, including uh, downloadable transcripts of all the interviews that I did with uh, today's thriving artists. So some of the stories that I have told today and told uh, in the book, the whole story, you know, you can read those. Those are kind of fun. Uh, we also have a private community full of uh, nearly 2,000 thriving artists right now where, you know, if you're going, well, that's great that C.S. Lewis and Jared Tolkien had – 
had this, you know, mastermind, but where's my community? And that's great that, you know, Eric has his uh, West Wing buddies, but where's my community? Well, uh, we've got a community for you uh, that's free uh, if you buy the book. Uh, And then we've also got a free workbook. So that as you're going through the book um, and you're going, how does this apply to me? What practical steps can I be taking? And that's a free resource that you get when you buy the book as well. And that's, again, at don'tstarve.com. Awesome. Jeff, thanks so much for coming back on the show and continuing this conversation. Let's make sure you come back sooner than the next book and maybe let's dive deep on some like really nitty gritty nerdy stuff. Totally, because I want to beat Hyatt. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I want I want to hold the record. <laughs> yeah, well, and he's coming back soon, so you're gonna have to schedule again. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Eric. I hope that after this conversation between Jeff and myself, that you have started to see some cracks in maybe some of the beliefs that were false about yourself, about what it means to be an artist, about how successful you can be as an artist, and how you have to do your work, whether you felt like you had to do it all on your own, or that you had to do some brilliant work that came up out of nowhere from yourself only, versus drawing from inspiration and working with others. And again, I hope that you'll consider Seth Godin's Alt-MBA workshop as one option for you to immerse yourself into not just creating in a solo way, but creating great work in a collaborative way to come up with much better work. You can find out more or apply at altmba.com slash to-do. You can find the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 179. You'll find the link for Jeff's book as well as the comments for this podcast. I'd love to hear what you got out of this episode. And while you're at the show notes, click the share button. Send this episode to somebody that you know would benefit from hearing this conversation to push them forward. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Beyond the To-Do List is a proud member of the Noodle Mix Network. Find more of our award-winning and award-nominated podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodle.mx.